With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Lucky Land Casino. Asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Oh, the shark, baby, has such teeth, dear. And it shows them pearly white. Just a jackknife has old Maggie Heath, baby. And it keeps it out of sight. Welcome everyone to this latest episode of Macklin's Take. Andy Clark and Matt Macklin with you as always. And today we have recruited the company of someone who really we should have got on a long time ago. I can't believe it's taken until episode 76 for us to make this happen. It's it's somebody we see all the time. And I think for that reason we thought it would be just a very, very easy thing to do. It's a, It's completely our fault, by the way, that this has taken so long. Not his uh, we've displayed a disgracefully uh, laissez-faire attitude towards recruiting one of the the biggest names in the sport, and it is Matt Troon boxing head honcho Eddie Hearn, fresh from fight camp, fresh from what was an extraordinary finale on Saturday night. So, Eddie, welcome to the to the heavyweight, to the intellectual heavyweight platform that is Macklin's take. A bit nervous, really. Well, I don't blame you. I don't blame you. So we're a couple of days now after the finish of a fight camp, after the finale, and and what a finale it was. To say that it went out with a bang would be an understatement. Um, the dust has settled a little bit. What's what are you making of it all now? I mean, I walk around this morning. I'm in the office now, and I walk around this morning. They're taking everything down, and you know the canopies come down, and the changing rooms have come down and some of the terraplast is starting to come up and we're realizing that we probably don't have a lawn left um and just knackered really because didn't really sleep after the, the Dillian White fight I, mean, I don't really sleep after any show but especially after that show and um then I had my mum and dad's 50th wedding anniversary last night which was quite heavy as well and you know just I feel good I feel um the the quality of of my work or our shows 
is it is often reflects on how I feel. Do you know what I mean? So if that makes sense. So if I produce some good work or a good show, I'm in a great mood. And if I don't, then I'm really in a shit mood and I'm miserable and, and it's reflective. So the fight camps, and this is really, there's, there's been times before where I've put shows together and I've never really been happy with that show. Doesn't happen, doesn't happen very often, but I just know it's an average show, like hands up. And leading up to that show, like all that week, I'll be miserable because I know I'm going to be sitting there on Saturday night thinking, this ain't great. And then I sit there on Saturday night and there's a couple of fights. You brought over foreign opponent that you thought, actually, I hope he's not poor. And then he is poor. And then, you know, you come off and then you look at social media and then you're getting bombarded. Oh, that was shit. Whoa, whoa. And it gives me the ump, basically. So these four weeks, I felt fantastic because... I knew going into the cards that we had good shows. So I was feeling good. I was excited. And then on the nights itself, they all went great. And then the next day I felt great. And then we rolled into another one. And then, of course, the the final show, which, again, on paper, you hope that everything gels, you know, even like down to Cullen, Chellen, and Clay Congo, and a Savage. And, like, you hope that they provide good entertainment because we're always under pressure on the pay-per-view to make sure that we can turn around and I can say, I told you, I told you you're going to get value for money. And we did it again. You know, bit of a bit, a little bit of a, you know, a deflated balloon in terms of the Dillian White defeat for, for me personally and for Matram because obviously we wanted him to win. But in terms of drama, you couldn't have asked for any more, you know, and, and the, the neutral would say, yeah, but if Dillian White would have just cleaned him out in the fifth round, still would have been a great night, but it wouldn't wouldn't have been anywhere near as dramatic and people would never talk as much as they did. So I guess in that respect, amazing. But personally, it's always difficult when someone you, you like and you've got a relationship with gets beat, especially when they get beat like that and especially in that kind of environment. I mean, you know, Matt, you were commentating, Andy, you were there. It's like when that happens with no crowd noise, it is, it's, quite, it's quite harrowing. You know, I mean, because you hear nothing other than gasps and the sound of his head hit the canvas, you know. And it's, it's, a, it's, I'll, I'll never forget that moment because I've never experienced it before. You know, of 33 years of watching boxing, I've never experienced anything like that before. You know, I've, I've, I've seen it happen in front of 20,000, everyone's going crazy. Oh, but it was just, I was like, at one point, I sort of squinted my eyes as if to go, that, that hasn't just happened, does it? So Saturday was full of drama, but the whole, you know, the whole um, four weeks, not just the shows, but the bubble and, you know, the content we've been driving and the camaraderie between our team at Matchroom and the fighters. And it taught me a lot about what I want to do in the future. And, and I, think, um, I think it was a, a massive success. I've said before, I think it was the biggest success of any sport in terms of any initiative that's come out since since the pandemic, because sports have done really well to come back, boxing's done really well to come back, but no one's done anything like that. And uh, that was big for the sport. It was, of course, big for us, but it's big for boxing to make sure that people realise that boxing is a major sport. It's interesting you say that about the knockout, because I was I was talking to Tony Bellew after the fight and, and Andy Scott and Tasha Jonas and and I said exactly the same thing, which was that it was even more jaw-dropping due to the fact that it was greeted with complete 
an utter silence. And for you, as you said, you've never experienced anything like that. The longer you, you do this as a, as a promoter, the more things you, you see, the more things you experience. Um, you've been through something like it uh, in, in New York in the, you know, the one punch changes everything kind of, kind of scenario. And does, did that make what happened on Saturday a bit easier to deal with or was it just I think, too different? I think in life when you go, you know, the more you go through certain experiences, the more you get comfortable with dealing with them. It doesn't matter whether you are a fighter walking out to an arena for the first time, a packed arena, you know, the first time you do it, I'm sure it feels a lot different to the 10th time you do it. Steve Davis said to me once, he's um, growing up around him. I said, do you ever get nervous when you play? And he said, to be honest with you, he said, I think my nerve ends have just disintegrated because he was just, time and time again under pressure or in that kind of environment or you know that kind of situation and that's really what happens with boxing so you know, I remember when I used to do the shows something would happen and my dad would be there and I would go oh dad I can't Whoa. and he just he's like listen son it's you know it's, it's boxing isn't it you know that's, that's the answer everybody gives isn't it it's boxing so and I guess they're right but it never gets easier to deal with and you know the both of those situations New York and um at the fight camp were situations where they were unexpected. You know, a lot more people gave Povetkin a chance to beat Dillian White than they did Ruiz beat Joshua. But at the time of the fight, actually, both of them, you know, at the time of the fight, Joshua looked like he was about to stop Andy Ruiz and Dillian White looked like he was about to stop Alexander Povetkin. So, um, you, you, you know, in answer to the question, I think my nerve ends just become disintegrated and you know the emotion doesn't change in terms of how it feels but the way you handle it and the ability to just go okay right make sure he's okay go to sky do the interview and um you know go ahead you know now deal with the contractual situation of the rematch get that planned you know and funnily enough i said the experiences i drew from aj against ruiz in terms of the next steps is the experience that I will use now with Dillian White. And I said to Dillian, you know, when AJ got beat in, in Madison Square Garden, I thought, I mean, it's like my world had ended. You know, I walked home that night from Madison Square Garden. I just remember coming out and the, my driver was there and he went, I missed her and he opened the door for me. I went, do you know what, mate? I said, I'm going to have a walk. <laughs> and he went, well, it's a lot. I was staying in Soho, right? It's like, I don't know, it was four miles or something down there. So he went, well, where are you going to walk to? I said, I'm going to walk back to the hotel. He went, it's a long way, sir. I was like, yeah, don't worry about it. And I walked the hard, God, now how long it took? I think it took me about an hour and a half or something like that to walk to. And I was just like, you know, I had my bow tie like hanging. People, people must have been walking past me thinking, oh, this bloke's had a, had a bad night. I had a bow tie hanging right down. The worst thing about that show was I said to myself for the first time ever, do you know what I'm going to do tonight? I'm going to wear a black tie. I'm going to wear a bow tie because we're selling out Madison Square Garden. And I thought to myself after, I'm fucking never wearing a bow tie again for a show. And I was walking, I just kept on walking and it was like, but it was, and the next week I remember I had Golovkin fighting and it was my 40th birthday. So my missus and the kids went home on the Sunday after the AJ fight and I couldn't get out of bed. Like Sunday, I, I was just, you know, it was almost like spiraling into some kind of sort of like depression. It was like, and then I had to go and do the Golovkin media stuff, you know, the press conferences and all that. And of course, every question 
was about AJ and about Ruiz. And, you know, and then my 40th birthday, I woke up and it was the day of the Golovkin fight. And I, you know, my family and everyone were at home. And I was just thinking, do you know what? Fuck this. This ain't for me, you know? And then, and it took me, it took me a good couple of weeks after that just to start getting back into the, into the groove, you know? And I think I said to Dillian on Saturday, I said, when that happened to AJ, I thought the world was about to end. I said, and we look at it now as one of the greatest experiences and greatest blessings. And obviously he made a lot of money on the rematch as well. And Dillian will as well. So I said to him, obviously now it's about the rematch. You have to win the rematch because we can only have that conversation with AJ now because he won. You know, I said, but if you don't lose, then you're in a terrible situation. But you have you have the, the right to rematch him. It's going to be a huge fight. Yes, it will delay your WBC situation, but you'll still be mandatory if you beat him. So you're still in it, mate. You know, and now it's a case of preparing for that rematch. So, yeah, it was a bit of a long-winded answer, but in answer to your question, um, expect the unexpected in boxing, in and out of the ring. It's interesting you touch on that, basically, on what a kind of adrenaline fueled train uh, boxing is generally, but particularly your job is. I had a quick chat with Frank Smith on Saturday, and, and, and he said that one of the strange things about lockdown was that you go from this this roller coaster where you're taking this traveling circus, as he described it, from place to place to place. And that previous year, you were literally doing that every week with, with Matchroom USA and Matchroom Italy as well. And then all of a sudden, that stops. And those kind of like adrenaline rushes, those spikes and then crashes, which you've just kind of described post-New York. I mean, how do you how do you ride those out without completely losing your mind? I mean, you kind of, you, you touched on it a bit there. Hey, everybody, sitting here with a famous Slovenian philosopher. How are you doing, sir? I am uh, in health, thank you. Are you uh, excited about something? I am excited about this latest uh, CIA-funded venture. A CIA venture? Yes, it's called the Desire and Capital Podcast. Oh, what is it about? I refuse your fascist question. Well, there you have it. Listen to the Desiring Capital Podcast, coming soon to a bourgeois platform near you. On your marks, get set, go! This is so crazy! It's quite, you know, I can't say like, I mean, obviously, it's a very lonely sport for a fighter. But it's quite lonely at times for a promoter as well, because you're riding the ups and downs of the shows, and things can go wrong at any time. You know, you look back on... I mean, probably why I felt like that after the Rees defeat as well, because five weeks before, Jarrell Miller had failed three drugs tests. And then I felt like the world was about to end trying to deal with that situation and then bringing an opponent and negotiating with him. And when when shows go well, like, it's the greatest feeling in the world. You know, like fight camp finished. To see responses from people, and I, you know, we joked, we're talking off, off record about, Twitter and stuff like that. And I say, no, I don't even read them anymore. But of course, when you're getting praised on those platforms, it's a lovely feeling. I mean, who wouldn't, who don't <laughs> want to be told they're great? You know, doesn't matter whether you've got an ego or not. And I have. So I want people to tell me I'm fucking great if possible. So when they don't tell me I'm great, it's all very well me saying, yeah, I don't give a fuck. But of course, you know, this, their the response 
is a reflection really of the success of, of my show or what I've done. So, you know, it's, it's really, it's, I want every show, I want every show to be great. And when it's not great, I do, I do get down because I'm proud of my work, but also I want to, I want to deliver. I want, like, I want that praise to be quite honest. So, but after, after a show, good or bad, but a lot easier if it's good, is a weird, I'm quite strange. Like I think my dad would basically do a show and then he'd be in the bar till four or five in the morning, you know, go out, whatever, you know, and I, I'm quite different. I go back to the room. That's, that's kind of like the loneliest time after a show because I'll go back to the room. Like during the night, it's all this crescendo and, you know, and you're buzzing. And, and then after that, it's like the most, if like, once you've done the media and all that's done, for me personally anyway, it's that's the most deflating time. Because I just, you know, and some of the younger generation in the office would say, Ed, we're going out. Do you want to go? We've got this table at this club. And, you know, I'm like, I'm going to bed. I won't go to bed. I'll go upstairs and I'll generally watch most of the show back or I'll read all the comments or I'll be posting or I'll be watching the videos and, you know, stuff like that. And But then that goes on till about five in the morning. And then if we're in Manchester or in Liverpool or wherever we are, then I'll wake up at eight and then I'll drive home and then I see my kids and then by then I've been away for four or five days and my missus will say over to you do you know what I mean and then it's like oh my god and then it's dealing with that all day and then so I've got to a period in my life pre-lockdown where when I look back now it's quite 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 a dangerous period in terms of not I don't I don't believe that I struggle with my mental health I think I'm quite solid although I do appreciate that can change at any time but I think physically, it weren't really good for me what I was doing. You know, people would say to me, hey, what, how do you do it? What do you do? But that sort of gave me a kick in a sick way. You know, when people say to me, I don't know how you do what you do. You're a machine. You're going week to week, flight to flight. And, I'm, and it's actually making me go, yeah, I can do that. That's Because I'm not a genius, but I don't think you can outwork me. Right? Clients. So, that's my biggest attribute. So it doesn't matter whether you're a fighter. If you outwork your opponent in preparation, in performance, you may not be as skilled, but generally you're going to be, you're going to be winning. And with me, although I do, you know, I, I do believe I'm, I'm good at what I do. It's the work ethic and the mindset that means that the others can't keep up because I know whether it's Bob, whether it's Heyman, whether it's Frank, they're not, they're not doing what I'm doing. It's impossible for them to be doing what I'm doing. So therefore, that's got to give me an edge. But I got a bit obsessed with that edge and that relentless spirit and just going event to event that actually I look back now, I think lockdown might have been a blessing for me because who knows? I mean, I could have just boom, a big heart attack and that's me done. You know what I mean? And that's the kind of thing that, you know, I get checks. I, you know, I've got a history of uh, heart problems in my family, and I'm always, you know, I'm trying to try stay fit, and I'm trying to always get in checks and stuff like that. But when you're flight to flight, stress to stress, event problem to problem, that's the kind of thing that's going to catch up with you. So the lockdown just gave me an opportunity to just reflect on that and say, you know what, you need like I don't sleep really. You know, you need to start getting to sleep. You need to start being on a time zone, going to sleep at a time. 
you know, working out four or five times a week. And I really enjoyed it. You know, the homeschooling and stuff like that drive me absolutely potty. But I will look back on that period as one of the fondest of my lives. And I do think it will change things moving forward. You know, I don't know if I want to go back to 55 shows a year or whatever and go into every single one of them and just, because at some point you have to let it go. And, you know, Frank Smith stepped up, other people have stepped up. But unfortunately with me, I am the circus act that you roll out. Do you know what I mean? So Frank can do a press conference or a weigh-in, but they want me, you know, people want to see me there. The fighters want to see me there. You know, when I do a press conference, they want me up there doing something stupid or creating a meme or whatever it is, you know? So people want my time and I just have to manage that a little bit better once we go back to normality. Matt, we talked to Caller about about this exact subject, didn't we? The kind of promotional treadmill Caller Sowland and and he said really that you, you, you see people come and go in boxing, didn't they? You see people arrive with all the money in the world as you know, as rich as Croesus and then a few months later their pockets have been emptied and, and off they go. And, and that really what it comes down to is that what binds him and, and, and Eddie uh, and Bob Arum and Don King uh, and any other promoter who was endured for a length of time is the fact that they're all they're all survivors, and that that's the key to it. You have to you have to find a way to survive because it's an incredibly cutthroat business. Yeah, I mean, what, what Eddie was talking about there, it, it, he was basically talking about the same emotional roller coaster that fighter goes through. It's very similar, even though it's, it, you're just applying it to the business as opposed to the actual fighting. You, you know, the ups and downs, the highs and lows. I remember after a fight. You know, on the, on the Saturday, you know, you had the fight and everyone's buzzing and that. On the Monday and the Tuesday, I feel depressed. Cause mm. and, and what I've realised is it's because I'm on such a high. But whatever goes up has to come down. Mm. So then you get used to sort of preparing yourself for the low that's going to come and it has to come. So the Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, you know, like I say, the last week, you've been building for this one night. Then you hit that night and hopefully it goes well and you win and everything's on this mad high. Then you're still buzzing the next day because everyone's still talking about it. It's still in the news and that. But then kind of like Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, people are back to work and life goes on and all of a sudden you're sitting there. You have, you're not building up to a fight. You haven't got, you don't know what's happening next. I think you're just sitting there a little bit bored and, and I suppose I'm, you're on a come down, aren't you? <laughs> the biggest drug in the world is boxing. Yeah, well, I that's, 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 why, that's why people struggle when they leave the sport. Mm-hmm. I think that's why people struggle when they leave anything that's exciting. You know, and that's when you talk about mental health problems, you talk about drugs, you talk about drink. I mean, you look at some great fighters that when they've left the sport, they they spiral in the you know, they they they've lost those highs that you just talked about there, you know, that that buzz. They live for that and they realise it's not going to be there anymore. And they look for something else to give them that high. To fill the void. Or whether it's drugs, whether you know, whatever it is, crime could be anything. But that's why I believe I'm such a strong, but nothing makes me feel better than when a fighter hangs up their gloves content, right? Mm. Because the worst thing in life is living with regret, right? And thinking that, oh, you know, as a fighter going, I could have done this. I could have done more. I just wasted it. I didn't do that. And when I look at people like Barker and Bellew, they're probably like my two best examples that I'm, that I'm most proud of where I say, like Barker's, Barker wouldn't have changed anything, anything, you know. Bellew still wants to fight today, really. But the way he wrapped it up and the money he earned and the legacy that he created out of nowhere, really, 
he can sit in his house or houses and say, oh, look, there's my belt over there, WBC world title. That's my first pay-per-view fight over there. Do you know what I mean? And that's, and then you can live a happy life because you can only live a happy life when you're comfortable in yourself. And, and when you've achieved what, you know, more than you ever th- dreamed of achieving, you can live that kind of lifestyle. But otherwise, you live in regret. And that's when you'll turn, you'll become unhappy. You'll search for things in life to try and solve, you know, the, the feeling you have inside. And generally, that will lead to a downward slope. So it's great to see fighters leave knowing they've given everything. And I think that you don't always leave a job or, or a career or, or a boxing career with the feeling that you couldn't have achieved more, but you can always leave anything saying that you couldn't have done anymore. And that's the difference because if you have that feeling, that should be enough for you. You know, just because you never won a world title, just because it's not, not you, Matt, by the way, you did deserve to win a world title, but just because a fighter never won a world title or a British title or a Commonwealth, they, they shouldn't sit there with regret. As long as they did everything they could, as long as they put everything into it, then you should be content in life, you know, because you couldn't have done any more. It's like, it's a bit like Dillian White on Saturday night. He couldn't have done any more in that camp, in the preparation. He worked so hard, honestly, you know, like for five months, I think, in that camp. Got himself in the best. And that's why all week on fight week, he was so happy because he was like, um, like I can stand in that corner before the first bell or like a sprinter can stand on the start line. Now I was talking to Dean and Asher Smith, sorry for the, the tangent, but, and I, I said about sprinting in a hundred meter race, right? we all talk about how great our sport is and it is, but you imagine that you've trained for four years for an Olympics, right? And you've got through your heats and then all of a sudden you're on that start line and you've basically got, well, less than 10 seconds to make it count, right? We always say a fighter's got 36 minutes, right? Can you imagine being on that side? And when we're talking about fractions in races like that, if you don't nail every fraction, every detail from, I don't know, I have got a clue what I'm talking about, you know, set, the reaction to the gun, you know, those first five yards, you know, the arms going up, the knees raising, the drop, like all those moments, 10 seconds. You've got to make that count. All it is is, and it's just a point two, point zero two of a second poor reaction to the gun, and your four years of work, your entire dream is over. Like that's pressure. You know what I mean? And listen, boxing's the same, but okay, well, Eddie should be promoting the hundred meters final. He just sold me a ticket. Then <laughs> <laughs> I should be doing athletics as well. To be fair, but um, it is. It's fascinating. I, I love. I love the fact, but. When you've given four years of preparation for that moment, if, you, if you're on that line and you know you couldn't have done any more, you know, you're in the best shape of your life physically and mentally, it's your time. And if it doesn't work for you at that moment, at least you can look back and say, I, I did everything. I worked. And that's how I feel about you know, my job as well. And you, Andy, you made a good comment about um, survivors right? I don't really want to be a survivor in boxing. I'm not looking to go skin, wind my company up, bounce back, you know, go to jail, come out, 
you know, uh, be sued, you know, go bankrupt. Like, I don't want to be a survivor because a survivor generally means someone that's had a shit time. Do you know what I mean? And that's the, and, and really, a lot of those people that you talk about, survivors, there's probably no better survivors than, well, certainly Don King. I mean, how he's even still alive and breathing and in business, we'll never know. Bob Arum, who is 89 or 88 and just still going. And Frank Warren, you know, he's been up, he's been down, he's been up, he's been down, he's been up, but he's still here, you know, and you, and you can never take it for granted that the next time he goes down, he'll come back. He won't come back, sorry, because he will. So these people, you know, you have, that's where you have to give them a lot of credit, those people, because they have been, but they're one-trick ponies. Yeah, they're just, all they've got is boxing. That's it. And that's not my business here. You know, I will end up, you know, we know how many sports we're involved with already, but I will end up doing weird stuff. I don't know, music, films, football, whatever. But boxing is just a small part of our business, but it's the biggest part of my heart and my life. You know what I mean? And that's why I do it, because I love it. And it is a drug. And everyone says, oh, do you think you'll ever, you know, listen, maybe we'll have this same conversation. Well, you guys are a bit older than me, so you might snuff it. <laughs> Actually, how old are you, Andy? Um, 42. Oh, all right. Bloody hell, you're one year older than me. What are you, mate? You're only, you're only late 30s, isn't it? 38. Yeah. Okay. Well, bloody hell, I'm nearly the oldest. Then. <laughs> I, I was saying we might have to be having this conversation at 88. Oh, I'm still going. I'm still, but I don't, you know, I, I don't know. It's, I think we will be. I think that once you're in boxing and once you've been bitten by that bug, uh, you know, unless something unforeseen happens, you're probably going to stay in it. And, and not not just surviving, hanging in there, winding up companies, like you said, but, you know, because st- I, I know that's not your mentality, so I don't think you're quite positive. You don't get dragged in with negativity where some of the, you know, Frank Warren, his, his powers also is poison. Well, yeah, but I think the bitterness, say, but the bitterness, I don't be like that, man. That's my fear. That's probably my biggest fear. And not just Frank, but like Bob. Mm. And like, they're so bitter. And it's not even their fault. Boxing's done that to them. Do you know what I mean? And I, it, whether you like them or not, unfortunately, being in the business that long and experiencing fighters leaving, you know, when you you feel like you've done everything for them, or someone screwing you on a deal, or, you know, like you say, winding a business up, whatever. You can't, I just don't think you can be that happy-go-lucky guy that's just all, because you're, you're always expecting a disaster. And that's the times in boxing. It's such a shit business at times. where you just think to yourself, you know, I look at my dad, you know, running the snooker or the darts. Like, he owns those governing bodies. So, effectively, he's a British boxing board of control. Right, or he's the, he's the WBC, or he's he's the he's the governing body, and they're like you know the the players in there because of how he's where he's taking the sport are like it's they're like thankful to be there. Do you know what I mean? They're so cooperative. They do it every now and again. You get Ronnie O'Sullivan having a moan, you know, but generally it's and we know dealing with fighters, dealing with agents, dealing with managers, and actually the pandemic. It's been a little bit refreshing in a way because it's enabled us to turn around and reshape boxing and say, no, I'm not going to give you that fight. Because you know the business, Matt. Do you think I want to make a bad fight? Like, never, right? But you get your arm twisted or sometimes you've got to do it to get a favour down the line or get him to take that fight down the line and you have to put him in a fight, you know, just like 
Brian Peters would have done for you or someone would have done for you at the time where you had a load of shit fights in between your massive ones at the end because it was a little sweetener, wasn't it? All right, you can fight Golovkin, but you got I'll give you this fight after if you lose or beforehand, I'll give you this warm-up. But those fights are only good for you, right? They're not good for the fans or me. So there's the balance, but the pandemic has given me an excuse but I think you've got to understand the, the wider landscape of the business of boxing that every, from a fan's point of view, from a network's point of view, they want 50-55 week after week after week. But that's not necessarily what's best for the development of that fighter. And obviously everyone's got points of view. So you've got the network, they just want 50-55s. The promoters just want 50-55s. But the manager, he's got to build and develop his fighter at the right pace at right. the right time. So there's, there's a difference in the level of fight. So... And you, you're, you're, you're as the promoter, you're dealing with the TV who just, who just want 50-55. So you've got to understand where the manager and the fighter's coming from. And you're, you've got to sort of bridge the difference, I guess. Yeah, it's about, it's about getting the, the mix right. Mm. You know? But you just made a great comment there. How on earth, in this country, does the British Boxing Board of Control allow you to manage and promote a fighter? Oh, I know it's completely. You just, gave, you just gave. I mean, and it's illegal in America. Yeah. Right? Oh, yeah. Exactly. So you imagine, right? So the, the manager's job is to basically fight for the fighter, right? And all those, you know, a time when you got an easy fight for a load of money in America, I'm not criticizing you or Brian. I'm saying, fucking well done. You've done, a good, you, you've done it right. <laughs> so the manager's job is to say, I want to get the easiest fight I can for my fighter for the most amount of money. Right, basically, or the biggest fight I can get in boxing. But generally, I want to get the easiest opponent I can for the most amount of money. And the promoter is saying, I want you to be in the toughest fight possible for the least amount of money. Right, so I can deliver for my network, my TV company, and you know, the fans. So, how can those people be the same person? It's absolutely ridiculous. So let me negotiate with myself on this. Matt, I want to give you 50 grand. Manager, how do you feel about that? Sounds good to me. Oh, great. Job done. And that's me having a conversation with myself as your manager and promoter. So I think that that will change, I'm sure, moving forward. But you are right in what you say. But we now have the excuse coming through the pandemic to go back. And it's not a lie. You know, I'm going to our broadcasters. Now, they're getting tough. No, no, that fight's not good enough. You know, we're not spending that kind of money anymore on that. And now I can go back to the managers and say, you know, and, and I understand the game. And I certainly understand how to develop fighters as well. And I'm not looking to put our kids, but great examples of that are, you know, Dalton Smith against that Nathan Bennett, right? That's a fight that we would have taken in two or three fights time. Now we have the opportunity to say, okay, if you don't want to, be in that fight. Now, we always knew, really, that Dalton Smith would win that fight. I don't see that it was high risk. I don't see that... But but the advisor was always thinking, oh, let's get love a couple of easy ones, and then we'll do Nathan Bennett. And this has given me the excuse to say, no, no, no. Same with Hopi Price against that Johnny Phillips, right? Hopi was always going to win the fight, but he had to give, like, four or five pound away against a roughhouse. But look at how that will work in their favour on developing them. They were step-ups, weren't they? They all stepped up. But also now, we haven't got to worry about the six or eight months fighting people, keeping them irrelevant. Look at how Dalton Smith's profile has risen through that performance. Right now, people are buzzing for Dalton Smith. You know, so 
I'm, I'm not saying to ma- managers and promoters, right, you've got to just sling your kid in there. But I'm saying we have to deliver value. And I promise, I'll make the fight. You will win this fight. But don't get me wrong. If you're awful, you might get beat. Hey, everybody, this is Moto G Pete from the Nokomoto Motorcycle Podcast. Join us every week while we rate, review, ride, philosophize, and generally obsess over every single motorcycle make, model, and style that could possibly exist, plus news and racing. That's the Nokomoto Motorcycle Podcast from Moto One Podcast Network Studios. But, well, matchmaking is a, a real art, Eddie. It's the, I mean, it's literally, you've got to. Anyone can build an undefeated record. You just go on box rec, you get in these foreign opponents that have had loads of wins but haven't fought anyone, and you just build a record. But to build a fighter takes skill, wisdom, experience, and it's picking the right fights where they are going to win because you don't want to get your prospect beaten, obviously. But you do need them to be extended and, 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 and grow as a fighter. And, and like, like you say, that, that fight that Nathan Bennett uh, against Thornton Smith, that was a, that, on paper, that was, oh, this could be a little step up, but it was a good learning fight for him. He'll be a better fighter because of it. And actually, he produced the goods more because he was on top of his game. Mm. Uh, that's uh, that's what I hate more than anything, is putting a fight on where you you know a lot of the time you have to bring in a foreign opponent. That's been another blessing, by the way, only being able to use domestic fighters, British fighters. You know, I'll be in Manchester Arena. You know, Fowler, you know, when he boxed that, that kid from Ghana, right? When he was sliding all over the ring. Boots. And it's like... You know, I don't know what we paid him, 15 grand, whatever it was, 10 grand, 12 for dollars, coming over, four people from Accra, right, on a return, hotels, everything. And you bring him in, and I look at him at the way, and I think, please, please don't, you know, please give me value or push Fowler or let him, you know, Fowler's done 10 weeks in camp. Come on. Well, that's it. Not only a waste of your money, it's a waste of time. That's the thing. I'm not even bothered about the money. Well, actually, that's a lie. But I'm not as bothered as much about the money. It's more about the opportunity to, that he has to develop him. Because now that he's blown that guy out and around, is he ready? Does he, will he go and fight Fitz? Or will he now say, oh, actually, no, I need another one because I need some more rounds. Do you know what I mean? So... And that's all you and you were talking about the managers. I was laughing because really, as a manager, I was thinking, no, nah, I wouldn't necessarily just want the easiest fight for the most money. Uh, there's, there's times where that might be the case, but there's certainly times where I think, now this kid needs to step up. Now he needs a, a certain level of a fight. Yeah, but that, that's great to have someone advise me that way. And Bellew's like that as well with the couple of guys that he looks after, and Dillian's very much like that with the people he looks after as well. I mean. Not being funny, but Alan Babich, he's all very well now saying, oh, he absolutely decimated Sean Del Winters. But on paper, well, that was quite a strange match to make. Do you know what I mean? Because I've not seen anything from Babich that says to me, you know, and actually afterwards, it looks like very clever matchmaking, where he was just very sure, Dillian, that Babich has got enough about him to take this guy out. Sean Del Winters has got some good wins on his record, beat that undefeated Russian, Tislenko. You know, it went six rounds, was it, with Joseph Parker? You know, and then you look at it after you go, blimey, that was a big statement. But it's calculated risks, isn't it? That's, yeah, yeah, exactly. And you, like you say, that's the art of a matchmaker, being able to take the right risks at the right time. I never say that I'm a matchmaker, but I've studied the sport for 33 years. Like, I, you know, growing up, I knew every fighter. In the British Boxing uh, Yearbook, I didn't stop reading it. 
for three or four years. I knew the journeyman. I knew everybody. And even now to this day, I could probably name you, you know, the top 10, 15 in the country in every weight class because I live and breathe it. So I, I, I feel as though I've got a good understanding of the right fight. And, and you know, and, and I think that was what we showed on Fight Camp was that was me jotting down fights that I thought and Ross and Frank and other bike where we just literally sit around. What about, you know, Gil and Bellotti? Why don't we just stick them in with each other? You know, like Cullen against Chile. You know what? That'd be a good tear up. You know, it's not on a lot of situations. It's not difficult when they're at that kind of level to just say you and you. I mean, the UFC have been doing it for years. Yeah. You know, where it's literally like, right, where's the roster? Right. Uh, him. Oh, him and him would be great. Guys, you up for it? Yeah. That's how easy it can be. But you, that only really happens at a slightly lower level, you know, where two guys are looking for the opportunity. Eggington Cheeseman, good example. You know, I don't think either guy would have possibly taken that pre-lockdown because maybe, and in the end it was like, guys, if you want to fight, that's a fight. You up for it? Yeah. And no one came out of it badly. I mean, Sam lost a very close fight. I thought he boxed really well. I thought he stopped Rose. That's not the end of the world. So, an example here, Eddie. Obviously, HBO, you, you did a few days of yourself. They're not in boxing anymore. Mm-hmm. A lot of people would have said that they they were just ruthless in one of these 50-50 fights and were acting too much as the boxing promoter in making the matches and didn't really give any room for the promoters that have proven and tested in developing fighters a bit more movement to, to make the fights now, I can see that point of view, you know, because it's all right having these 50-50 fights, but to build a star, you know, if you'd have bumped us, when, if Oscar De La Hoya had four, I think, who was it? Uh, I can't remember. Uh, Gennaro Hernandez, I think it was. HBO were throwing all this money. Bob Aaron told me this story and Bruce Trampler. They are throwing all this money. They want De La Hoya to fight for the world title in his ninth fight. They want to fight Gennaro Hernandez, blah, blah, blah. And Bruce Trampler wasn't keen on it. He thought, I don't know if he's quite ready for that. And Deloitte is a big star. Why are you getting bumped off now? Just, you know, get the big money for this 50-50 fight. So they went up away. They fought Jimmy Bridell. Sorry, they fought Jimmy Bridell for the WBO title, which wasn't that sort of sought after in America at that time. Won the title. Uh, stepped up in way. I think had a couple of, won another version of the title. Had a couple of defences. Then fought Gennaro Hernandez. Dragged him up in way. And he beat him. But... If he'd have fought Gennaro Hernandez when the HBO were trying to call for the fight, he, he might have got beaten. And then, then you wouldn't have had De La Hoya earning all those millions because he wouldn't have become the superstar. So when you're coming through, having that O next to your name means there's no limit to the fans' perception or, or dreams to how big you may be. So like you said there, Cheeseman Eggington, they're not undefeated. They're at a stage in their career where they need, you know, they've got to go in and take this 50-50 fight. But I think when you bring in a prospect for, let's say, an Olympian, a Josh well, Kelly or whoever, you Boatsy, don't want to throw him in. Boatsy is a good example, you know, and Josh Kelly. I mean, Kelly's now at the stage now where he's willing to take that risk. And that's the Avanesian fight for him, right? That's that's the first big risk, 50-50 fight. Quite unusual to do it with so few fights, but they fancy it. Boatsy's in a similar kind of position where the promoter, me, because of the pressure from now fans and broadcasters, want to see him in with Joe Smith, Sullivan Barrera, you know, I mean, maybe Dimitri Bivol in time, you know, like these kind of people. But really, we know that's two or three fights away. But it's the pressure that 
will be created from the broadcasters and from the fans. And the fact that, as well, don't forget, Matt, when a fighter's on great money and you're in this kind of environment and you're under pressure to deliver good fights. Now, if you look at this Saturday, Dubois fighting, right? So I know he was going to fight fire for whoever it was, but he's ended up in a, in a mismatch. But you have that obligation to the fighter where you've got to get him out. And that's the worst thing for a promoter where they've got to go into that show on Saturday knowing it's awful. And they've got to give Dubois a load of money. But it's like one you've just got to buy well, and go, ah, oh, shit. And, you know, and that's actually, you know, we're close to announcing Boatsy's opponent for September now. That's about getting that mix right where you're never really going to get the opponent. Boatsy's been out for 14 months. Do you know what I mean? And it's like, the truth is, he needs a solid return. But a solid return might not get the broadcaster or the fans excited. But it is part of the development of Joshua Boatsy. And you're quite right about, you know, with those fighters in that category. For me, Joshua Boatsy will go and win a world light heavyweight title. And I believe he can unify the division. I think he's that good. But if we mess it up on the way... One, you're going to affect his long-term value. And two, you might even affect his ability to even achieve that. So I mean, that's I, when I, you've got to put the noise out from the fans, you know, and the, and, the, and from the broadcast as well. So this kid's special. Let me do my thing with him, you know, and, and I promise you we'll, we'll get in there. But then you need, on, on that same card, you need yeah. a couple of 50-50 you your yeah. money on the main event. Yeah. Because the kid's a lot of, you know, because he's an Olympian and he's a great fighter. So, and now that's that. And now you have no crowd, right? So you're already looking at a show going, all right, we're going to do a couple of hundred grand on this show. Uh, and now, but unless we invest another couple of hundred grand, we can't have a banging card. So what are you going to do? You're going to try and minimize your, your losses and put on an average card, or you're going to do a nice few quid and put on a, a banging card. And we're actually going for the latter because I just feel like we can't step back now after fight camp. You know, it's it would be it, we wouldn't be doing ourselves justice. So it's a disaster situation, really. I mean, thankfully, you know, we had a gamble on the pay per view, which paid off. The numbers were fantastic. So you know, we can walk away from fight camp and go. Actually, weren't too brutal for us. Now it's going to be more difficult as we start looking at the likes of Boatsy, Callum Smith, Billy Joe Saunders, Josh Warrington, you know, Kel Brook. We've got to find them homes. Usyk Chizora. Joshua Pulev, that's really the, the big challenge now without fans in the arena of delivering those fights. And, and I don't want to be going to Billy Joe and saying, right, no crowds at the moment, so let's just have a normal defence, which basically translates to a shit fight. Billy will underperform because he won't get up for it. Everyone will moan, right, from start to finish. And the fight probably will, will be flat. And yet you're going to have to spend a load of money giving him an easy defence. I don't want to do that. You know, I'd rather take a risk on a pay-per-view or I'd rather, you know, sink some money into the show. Because otherwise, these guys are in danger of, of going into the wilderness or going flat or losing that opportunity to be in a, a massive fight. You know, and I think we need to use this opportunity now try and bring fighters together to make big fights. But, you know, someone said to me, do you think Dillian White would have won if there was crowds there on Saturday? 
And it's like, no, I don't actually. I think that it was what it was. But it is an intri- you know, it is it can be a risk to a fighter. I don't think Dillian White underperformed. I thought he boxed really well, actually. But there is that risk, isn't there? I mean, look at John O'Carroll the other night. You know, John O'Carroll all of a sudden goes from filling out Manchester Arena and beating Scott Quigg and moving to top 10 in the world and being a bit of a star on Sky Sports to getting beat in a studio in Sheffield, where Manchester or whatever, you know, over, over 10 rounds. Yeah, that's and dangerous. And it's like, you know, he's doing his post-fight interview after and he's like, oh, it's just... A, and he's thinking, and it, I think it's kicking in, going, my God, that's absolutely disastrous. Mm-hmm. And that's that's the, 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 the risk right now for fighters, is boxing and being up for performing in that kind of environment. I said to Andy, I said, you know, these stay busy fights, they're just absolutely yeah. disastrous. Yeah. What happens is you'll drop your level because you ain't got that fear factor and they raise their game because it's an opportunity. And what should have been an easy fight ends up being life and death. And but, but then when you win, man, but when you win, all of a sudden people criticise you and don't rate you anyway. Yeah. So, like, going back to Jono, he just, he looked like he was sparring. And then, so everyone who watched that fight, I mean, whether you want to give him the excuse that it was behind closed doors, no one rates him anymore. Like, he's still the same fighter that beats Scott Quigg. You know, when you were finishing your career and you went and boxed Jason Wellborn, for example, now we know you weren't like the prime Matt Macklin, but you just weren't, you couldn't, you know, when you've boxed Golovkin here and, you know, you've gone to Germany and boxed Sturm and stuff like that. You're up for it. Yeah, and it, all of a sudden you're in Birmingham, you know, and it's like, it's only really local pride that's <laughs> making you dig in in that fight, wasn't it? I mean, that was like one of those fights. That was like one of those fights where you see a lot of fighters coming to the end of career, or at, you know, the sixth or seventh round, just go, okay. go watch. yeah, pull me out, fucking, I'm retiring. But it was only because it was in Birmingham and you got enough about you where it was like, oh, fucking hell. Oh, yeah. got a few, oh who's over there? Oh, my mates are over there. Oh, bloody hell. I've got, sold a few hundred tickets. Oh, well, I better bite down and get this win. And again, with Brian Rose, I always remember you saying at times in that fight where you fought yourself, do you know what? I'm done. This is it. Like in the fight and having to go, was it ninth or tenth round where you went? I better stick it. I better put it in here because I've got you know. But it's, exactly. it's it was uh, only the bit of pride. Yeah, that. really, I was thinking, fuck it. But that's what I was saying. I think these stay busy fights. You know, it's different with fight camp, and obviously there's no crowd and will that affect. But I think people know they're genuinely 50-50 fights, or very near to fifty, might be fifty-five, forty-five. But they're up for it. So I think people have performed because of that. Where you know, if you was these were like nothing fights. Like, like yeah, John O'Carroll's perfect example. And I, I had loads of fights like that in my career where I got away with it, but I felt shit after because I knew a buck's crap. And mm. I, had a, I had a, you know, I struggled with a guy that really I should have blew out of there. So, you know, for me, it was either going to a 50-50 fight or have a stand or mix-up. Yeah, I know, <laughs> yeah, yeah. So in, in terms of how worried you have been about the about the future of, of the sport during lockdown. I mean, how worried were you? Because I guess pre before you before you had the idea for Fight Camp and then that became more and more of a reality and it was something you realised that you could do uh, and hopefully make a big success of. But those early days when shows just started disappearing, then you would put shows back and then you would realise that, yeah, July's not going to happen either. I mean, what... Things look pretty bleak, didn't they? There's no, there's no getting away from Every it. Every business is face, facing the same um, 
obstacles and, and problems at the moment, just to give you some context, when, when something like that happens with the pandemic, the top, top level execs will say to people, right, you better cut 30, 40% off your costs. And as a broadcaster, the first thing you'll do is you'll go to your rights holders and you will say, right, we need a discount or we need to spend less money with you over this period. And they'll do that across the board. It's nothing personal, you know. So everybody starts to put on the, you know, the, the, you know, the upset face and says, oh, this is the world's ended, you know, business is terrible. And we're using that same excuse onwards to other people as well. And as I said earlier, it's not even an excuse because everyone can see it and everyone knows it exists. So when Sky comes to me and said, and, and Sky were amazing, by the way, like, you know, they supported us, they set out and they supported our vision. But of course, everybody wants to spend less money across, you know, design will come back to us and say, right, this is what we were going to spend before the end of the year. This is what we now want to spend. Yeah. And, and they need to then report back to their bosses and say, good news. We know we've had four or five months without any live sport. We know we've lost subscribers, but we've managed to cut our costs and, and we're balancing up the difference. So that was one of my mindsets behind Fight Camp, because I have to be honest, as much as Sky have backed me to the hills and backed boxing to the hills over the years, I did get the feeling at times that coming through the pandemic that we might not be as important or boxing might not be as important as I thought it was. And I was wrong because it is really important to them. And But the, but the flavour that I got was... Or, you know, I don't know. Now, coming off Fight Camp, I think everyone thought I was a bit mad with Fight Camp. You know, I remember like when Ed Robinson and the guys came down here for production talks, they were like, oh, I don't know. No one was, no one was basically going, Eddie, this is unbelievable. We are, you know, I, I was kicking everything over the line. But once we got rocking and rolling, once the pictures start going up, once they saw the column inches in the papers, it was like, okay. So then when you look at their business like Sky, when you bounce back with content and you start, you know, flicking a switch on subscriber, subscribers paying again, you have to be able to go back and say, what are we offering? So for Sky, they could go back and say, Premier League is back, right? Started in July. I think they started charging people again in July or August or whatever it was. And then in August, we've got fight camp. We've got four weeks of solid boxing, blah, blah. And then in September, we've got, the Premier League darts or what, you know, so, but once it was up and running and once the first week kicked in, they saw the numbers, but particularly the pay-per-view numbers from the weekend. Now I'm walking with a little bit more of a swag and, you know, thinking, yeah, we're hot again, aren't we? So right now I'm buzzing and there's a real demand for boxing. You know, Fight Camp has has basically expressed to people. And this is great news for everybody, by the way, not just Matchroom, where, because if BT are watching Fight Camp and going, fucking hell, look at that, look at that pay-per-view at the weekend, that will convince them that boxing's okay. You know what I mean? So, wow, boxing is hot, you know, that pay-per-view done well, you know, we'll keep investing. And the same with The Zone and ESPN and Fox. And, you know, if one of those... Move. If one of those evaporates or pulls out of boxing, it's bad news for the other promoters because you haven't quite got 
the leverage, you know, um, the zone look at ESPN plus and say, this is really what, you know, it works, this model works. So, and if all of a sudden ESPN plus turn around and say, boxing is not really working for us. Now they're a major, major corporation that, and that'll have ripple effects through. Um, so it's important to me that Sky are behind boxing and they support boxing and, and, but more importantly, it's important that boxing is delivering for them. It's all very well putting on good shows. If it's not hitting the numbers, if it's not creating the noise, then it don't work. And luckily, we've come out of that period where boxing, I honestly think, I see boxing as the number two sport on Sky, you know, behind, behind Premier League football. And it doesn't always deliver the same ratings, but in terms of the noise, in terms of the digital content, in terms of the you know, the, the, the website visibility. It's, it's, it's a big part of their business. Yo, I'm DK, co-host of the One Star Recruits podcast. My best friend Rip and I host five-star athletes, celebs, business leaders, comedians, and coaches from around the world. Each week, I can guarantee you the show will always have great laughs, catch up on life's in relatable ways, and have a ton of fun. We're recruiting you. We are the one stars, which means we can ask the questions that no other podcast asks to guests like Joey Chestnut, Evander Holyfield, Bobby Hurley, Jenny Finch, Ryan Lochte, Montel Jordan. New guests every week, compelling interviews that you want to hear. Check us out wherever you get podcasts. One Star Recruits. Eddie, you'll have to start including a little number on the karaoke every week. I know. Well, I'll do anything. It doesn't matter. <laughs> Matt, you know, unbelievably, right? So, obviously, Fight Camp was the home of Shamal, motherfuckers. Yeah, right. And then, <laughs> but whenever I do something stupid, it just lasts. Like, I can't tell you. I was walk, I was on a bike, actually, cycling through, uh, round, my, round my way, going, I can't remember where I was going, going to get something. And then this bloke's gone past in the car. This is two days after that incident. And he's come from behind me and he's just opened down the window. He's gone, Eddie, Shamal, motherfuckers. Like this out the window, like going around the whole, echoing around the whole village, right? And that stays with you for ages. So now I get on a train, Eddie, do that. Shamal, go on, do it, do it, do it. It's like, oh. So when I did the karaoke, that's, people have forgotten about Shamal. Mm. (laughs) Now, last night, I went to my mum and dad's 50th wedding anniversary. The bloke singing is going to say, I just wondered if I could take this opportunity. Eddie, will you come and sing Ain't No Sunshine when she's gone? I'm like, mate, what am I? A circus act or something? You know, <laughs> I can't even really sing. Next thing I'm up there singing the song. And it's like, that's what I say about having to be at these shows because I am the clown, right? I'm the clown that you put out at the kids' party or, or the anniversary or the bar mitzvah. Right to say, oh, he's here. The entertainment's here, and that's that. You know, in terms of operating the shows, I come up with the idea. Fight camp, great. I go out, I sell it, I open my mouth, blah blah blah. But I'm I'm putting it together. That's Frank Smith. That's Ross. That's an amazing team we got at Matrim. But that's what I do. I go out and I talk, and I'm I'm the showman. But without in, ter- in terms of that work ethic that you talked about, that you see. Clearly, you know, that's unsustainable, isn't it? Not if you want to stay healthy. You can't keep flying in air everywhere, not sleeping. How do you get a balance where you're still sort of, you know, key in the promotion, selling it, but delegating other... Yeah, delegation. Delega- delegation is key. And it's something that I really struggled with as we started to expand. 
Why was you a control freak? <laughs> yeah, but I wanted my stamp on everything. So, yeah. but if you build a team in the right way to understand the vision, then they understand what I want. And, you know, they don't have to but be... That takes time, though, doesn't it? Bring it does, people. but they don't have to be yes-men, by the way. It's not, oh, yeah, you, we know you like it like this. So, you know, I want people to come to me and say, we used to do it like this, but actually, now moving forward, I think it should be like that. And that happens a lot. But back in the day, now don't forget, it used to be me, Frank, and Johnny Wish. Right? That was our boxing team. And that was only six or seven years ago. Now we've got 40 staff worldwide, you know, working on, on matchroom boxing. But down to the poster design, I would, I would, I'm obviously not, dis, you know, digitally design it, but everything would come from me. Now they're coming to me and saying, this is the poster we're thinking about for the show. And I will say like that, don't like that. But before I was doing everything, you know, and over time, but that only comes when you have the comfort in your team. That yeah. You know, you've got the confidence to delegate it to them. Like I can say to Frank, go and do the Wayne. Right, or even go and do a press conference. You know, we take the Mickey out of him on the press conferences, and you know he's still learning, but he's competent enough to go in and do that. Now he's not going to start doing karaoke or doing shamal or whatever, and making a clown out of himself because that's for me to do. But having the ability to delegate, you know, sponsorship. You know, I used to go out and sell all the sponsorship for the show. Now we've got a team of people that are creating partnerships for brands in boxing. You know, social media. It was just me. Now we've got six people in the social media team, you know, who, who have a lot more knowledge about algorithms and statistics and all this than I do. I just used to just bang it out there, you know? So our business has evolved a lot. And actually, when you look at the growth of Matron as a business, we're now at that stage where we're having a lot of conversations with people who, quite frankly, want to acquire the business. You know, they want to talk about Matron floating, they want to talk about takeovers. And, and this is, you know, as successful as my old man's been, he's still out of Dagnum, you know, and built this little business up in Romford to a situation where we have one of the biggest global sports businesses in the world. And now it's about being able to take those next steps, just like a fighter might go from British to European to world. We have been doing that consistently and there's still many more steps to go to Ring Magazine champion, unified and pound for pound great in our business. But that comes with global expansion and the ability to bring in the right people who, has, who have the experience, who've been through those situations before. Because, you know, we've, we've never been involved in a takeover or a float or, you know, all this kind of stuff. But we're very protective of what we got because we're a family business. But that mindset will only take you to a certain level and you have to decide, do you just want to be a massive family-owned business, which has been an unbelievable success story, or do you want to multiply 10 times and create a UFC of boxing? Because that's the only long-term strategy that I have, which sounds incredibly arrogant, but it's global domination of boxing. It's one brand, one business, and being able to take that globally, make the fights you want to make, no cross-network politics, no promoter politics. I'm not saying that I'm going to, you know, well, I'm saying I'm going to do it, but I'm not saying it's going to be easy or, or you know, it might, it might not be achievable. But it's the only strategy that I've got because it's the only thing that can really work.
You know, is boxing not too splintered for that to be totally, achievable? Totally splintered. But it's we have to try because it's the only way boxing's going to be, you know, a multi-billion-dollar business by having that that unity or that one. You know, I still think Matt, you're always going to get other promote, you know, other uh, companies, other promoters. You do in UFC. How many other spin-off MMA brands are there? Loads. You know, Bellator, big, big brand, you know, Cage Warriors. Blimey, there's loads of them. But let's be honest, UFC runs the entire sport. And that's where I want to get to with boxing. Now, pre-pandemic, we were expanding in about five territories with offices around the world, and it's gonna, you know, it's gonna slow us down 10 to 12 months. But the the, the mindset and the vision is still there. Because I don't see what else there is to do in boxing. You know, I think we've done pretty much everything else. And I want to do something outrageous. I want to do something that completely changes the sport. I, I think I can do it, but there's a big chance I can't. Mm. So um, that's really all I've got on my mind is, you know, to, to have that ability to have offices in Sydney, Berlin, Madrid, Milan, London, uh, New York, Toronto. And you have those shows and it's constant events but one brand one business you know with, with a multitude of broadcasters so yeah it's um that's what we've got to try and do that's exciting exciting load of problems and you know but it's i just i just don't see a solution really i mean to yeah we can all work together you know and try but we know where it's all going to go you know like me and Bob can say, yeah, Matrim top rank. We go, and we do work together. And, you know, but really, does he really want to do me a favor? No. It's only like the stuff with Frank Warren as well. You know, Frank Warren can't stand me. Let's, let's have it right. And I don't really want to do business with him, to be honest with you. Will I look at it? Yeah, 100%. I have an obligation to, to the sport. But you, you know the business better. That's why, you know, when all those kind of statements come out, everyone in the business goes, <laughs> No chance, don't they? You know what I mean? But we still have to go through that process. And there are fights that we should be making together. But in terms of these, you know, these people can't help themselves. So there's a partnership. You think I want to team up with someone that has been sending me dozens and dozens of legal letters over the years, tries to be uh, obstructing my shows, um, complains to the board nonstop, you know, bad mouths us, like, where, where's the value in that? And I'm, I'm not saying that we got to just, you know, oh, we, let's just, we can't just wipe our egos to the side for the good of boxing. But I've worked my nuts off for 10 years to get to where we are right now. It's not just about, you know, saying, yeah, come, come on with us, you know? Because when I was coming through and they were number one, do you think they ever tried to help me once? No. They tried to kick me in the nuts as many times as they could. I'm not even saying I'm going to do the same, but if it's right for us, if it's right for our boxers, if it's right for our broadcasters, we will look at it. Yeah. In terms of fight camps over now, no one's sure when the crowds are going to come back. Hopefully there will be, you know, in the next months that, that follow, but who knows what, what's the plan to kind of, you know, you've, you've really come back with a bang there at fight camp. We're going to let it breathe for a bit and then sort of come back in the September or? Yeah, yeah. we were, we were going to go September the 12th. And all of a sudden, September 12th, 
you know, was three weeks away. And that was on Sat three weeks Saturday. And we've got we've got a card in place virtually with Watsy's opponent pretty much locked in. But I just said to Adam Smith on Saturday, do you know what? Like, are you in a tearing rush to come back after fight camp? And everyone's like, no, <laughs> you know. And actually, we're not under that much pressure from the fighters saying, you know, out of this lockdown, there's a lot of fighters that have needed more time than they thought they would for preparation. Like, everyone's on me. I'm ready. I'm ready. I'm ready. Okay, you're boxing on X. Ah, a week later. Have you got anything a bit later? Do you know what I mean? So there's no tearing rush. But our biggest challenge now, to be honest with you, in the short term, is coming back with something as powerful as fight camp, you know, we can't, I'm not going to now just go to a studio or your call and say, right, we're in here now. Imagine how, like, after what we've just witnessed, going in there, everyone will be walking around. It's what I said about the way I feel. I'd be miserable, right? I, I would just be down and thinking, this is shit, I, I, you know. So I have to create something that is the bollocks. And now it's about going to the government and saying, right, you've, we've done the snooker. You let us have 350 people in that pilot scheme. Can we do a pilot scheme for boxing? So in September, can we have 500 people somewhere? And if so, great. And then when we go into October, okay, can we have 2,000? Can we have 4,000? Can we have 6,000? November, can we have 10,000? And hopefully we get to a stage where, you know, by the way, the Dillian White, Alexander Povetkin rematch, I would really like that to take place in front of fans. Right, I think that is, a, imagine that, you know, the O2, that'd be fantastic, sell out immediately. It would be brilliant, but we just don't know. And, and of course, AJ, you know, AJ was here on a fight camp on Saturday. He's ready to fight behind closed doors. But I don't know, you know, it's, if we have to do it, we will do it. But now it's about pushing the boundaries with the government, making sure it's safe. I mean, look, we did 433 COVID tests at fight camp, not one net, not one positive. You know, I'm not saying it's a huge sample, but it's a step in the right direction. And I think actually now the government aren't insisting on testing for sports now. So that will be a British Boxing Board of Control moving forward into September, October. Do we still have to test fighters? It's very expensive. So I think there's a situation where the next step is to come up with a concept behind closed doors, if we have to, but more importantly, now try to get people back to getting fighters into the arenas. Okay, well, we won't keep you too much longer, Eddie, because uh, you'll be very generous with your time, but I think people will... Oh, I, know. I do talk a lot, don't I? I've realised, bloody hell, we've done an hour. <laughs> no, this is perfect. I don't think, I don't think you two have said anything. <laughs> it's, it's just the way we like it. It's just the way we like it. It keeps the conversation going really, really easily. Uh, and you're talking about there about how the landscape changes, of course, when something like uh, COVID-19 happens and how people are maybe more inclined to take risks a little bit sooner. Do you, do you think it will help with the making of the very, very biggest fights? And by that, obviously, I'm talking about the likes of Anthony Joshua against against Tyson Fury, because the window for these things, as we discovered with, with uh, Joshua Wilder, it doesn't stay open forever, does it? Uh, and we know that those two, are, they, they have an inclination to get that fight made as soon as they can, um, you know, obviously they've they've got fights coming up themselves, of course. But is that something you? How difficult or easy do you think that's going to be to make, assuming they both win their next fights? Well, I think your point is the answer to your 
initial question, which is it easier to make these kind of fights in this kind of environment? The answer is yes and no. Yes, because people are thinking to themselves, blimey, you know, I better take this fight and you know, take this opportunity to create legacy and make a lot of money because blimey, the world might shut down again. But then on the other side, people aren't as willing perhaps to part with the money without the, the, the guarantee or the confirmation that the world would return to normal. So like a good example of that is when you're looking at a site fee for fights, there isn't really any country right now. They all want to do it, of course, but when? You know, and, and, and what state would the world be in? So you're talking to, at the moment, I don't know if you talk to the Middle East or you talk to China or you talk to, you know, those kind of regions that will be offering huge site fees for a fight like that. They're like, yes, we want to we want to do it, but we just, you know, is there going to be a second spike? We can't possibly give you a date right now where we can stage comfortably say we're confident that will happen until 2021 and that's when you'll see I mean the one thing I said before White Povetkin was the the heavyweight jigsaw will be clearer on Sunday and it was you know and what it means is is the initial sort of obstruction of the Dillian White mandatory situation has for now been removed now when those two rematch I believe, well, I know the winner of that fight will be WBC mandatory and they will be called upon. But it certainly now won't be till the back end of 2021. So that frees up the AJ Fury fight in that perspective as well. I think that AJ and Fury, they're in. They're, you know, we know the terms. It's not very difficult. Everyone's on board. They've just got to deal with their fights. And unfortunately, in the heavyweight division, there is a huge amount of risk in every fight. So we better just cross our fingers. You know, when AJ boxes Pulev, that he can deal with him after being out for a year, you know, maybe even boxing behind closed doors. And we hope, again, that Fury deals with Wilder. And then you will a million percent see Fury against um, AJ. And now you can actually see that it's going to come sooner rather than later. You know, last time we had the, the issue of the Dillian White situation that was probably going to go in I don't know March April so then you're looking at AJ for September now you can say if those two win their fights that fight can get made in May or June of next year with with no you know we still have the Usyk situation to sort of navigate around as well but generally we're in really good shape to make AJ against Fury just as long as they both win and that's you know you imagine that Dillian was going to was the world champion and he was fighting Anthony for the undisputed. And we were sitting here last Thursday going, all he's got to do is win. And the undisputed's on, you know, and then bang, one punch changes everything. And all of those guys have the ability to end a fight with one punch. Right? And that, that's, that's why it's the greatest division of all. That's why everybody loves watching it because you just never know. But I do think, I know that AJ wants, I mean, he wanted to fight undisputed for a long time, but now it's like, get it on, get it on, get it on. But I think as well, because of the experiences he's had in the past, like with Ruiz and stuff like that, I see Bob, Bob Aram's comments sticking the knife into Dillian White, you know, about, oh, well, all you were doing was talking about Fury. And to be honest with you, he wasn't. Like, he was really focused on a Povetkin fight. But definitely AJ was thinking about the Deontay Wilder undisputed and making a statement. And, you know, then all of a sudden your mind goes elsewhere. If AJ starts thinking about Tyson Fury undisputed, when he's fighting Pulev, 
that fight's going to be a lot more difficult than it could be if he was a million percent focused. And I don't think he'll make that mistake again. Okay, Eddie. Well, we'll we'll leave it there. Thanks very much. Thanks very much for joining us. Well, just just quickly, actually, what what, what does this week look like for you? Is it, is there such a thing as downtime? And if so, could this week be it? I mean, what do you what do you what do you generally do just to try and tune out? Because when I left the office on Saturday night, uh, I don't know, wasn't even one of the great things about fight camp is you've only got one or two media. So once once the fight's over, I do like one interview and I can go home. Normally, I'm there for two hours after doing every outlet that's there. And So when I left on Saturday, I said to everyone, right, we've got to get cracking for September, October. I'll see you on Monday. And I've come in this morning and I'm the only one here. And Frank, Frank Smith sent out an email saying, oh, because of the loading and they're taking everything out, the office is closed till Thursday. And I was like, what? So it's only me and John Hill, who's head of our operations here. We're the only ones in. So they're, they're working from home, you know, apparently. So basically, this week's all about locking in the plans for September, October, and even November, December, to be honest with you. Like, we have, we're going to do one Saturday night fight night in September, one in October, one in November, one in December. And we're going to do a minimum of two pay-per-views across those five months as well. So we're going to have six to seven shows in the UK till the end of the year. We're also going to do a show in America at the beginning of October, um, beginning of November and the beginning of December, three shows there. We're also going to do two Italian shows and we're also trying to do our first show in New Zealand with Joseph Parker against Junior Farr in December. So we're kind of running at about 12, somewhere between 12 and 15 shows from now until the end of the year. Really, my mindset and before I go just one thing to people is when you talk about focus too many people overthink too many things and one of the biggest problems with mental health is people overthink things and they start worrying about things that might not even be achievable or might not even be relevant to to what is happening so you should always have a medium and long-term goal but the short-term goal especially in the world we live in today, is the most important thing to focus on. If you can get up every day and just execute things that you should be doing, some days, when I'm a little bit all over the place, I'll just write down 10 things that I have to do today. And they could be advanced or they could be menial. One might be walk the dog. One might be take your clothes to the dry cleaning. Right? And you tick off everything from that list. I promise you, at the end of that day, you'll go, that was a good day. And you start getting that momentum back. The short-term focus is so important. So we can talk about taking over the sport, one global brand to dominate boxing. But literally, all I'm thinking about at the moment is today, tomorrow, September, October, November, December. And in my head right now, it's all you've got to do is get through to the end of December. Right? So focus on that, deliver on that. And then next year, we might be back to normality. So that's a lesson for people at home. Don't forget the book's coming out end of October, relentless. But the short-term goals is how you get your mind on track and stop it from wandering, you know, starting to accept defeat mentally, day by day, day by day, job by job, you know, chore by chore. And and the medium and long-term goals are completely impossible. 
if you don't take care of the short-term goals. I 100% agree with that. You know, you've got a big task ahead of you uh, and the way to get there is to break it down into a series of daily achievable goals. And then before you know where you are, uh, you're almost there with, with what seemed like it was impossible, not that not that long beforehand. So, Eddie, that's, that's a good place to sign off. Uh, thanks, for your, thanks for your time today. Uh, it's been, as I said, it's been a long time in the making this one, but um, we'll catch up with you again, again soon, I hope. We both really enjoy Fight Camp. I know I'm, and I'm speaking for Matt there as well. I thought it was... I mean, I thought it, I saw it on TV the first two weeks, and I thought, "Wow, this looks this looks absolutely unbelievable." And then when you get there, and you, you see the little... first time there, Saturday, Friday before Friday and Saturday, and you see the kind of the overall panorama of it, and and what people won't see is the field of alpacas that is just just past the fence down to the TV compound. It I've, was... got, I've got to just say, I've got to interrupt you quickly, Andy, when you talk about the alpacas. So, so on Sunday morning, me and Barry Jones were back down at Maskell's, and we were doing our recap piece. For, I think it goes out on Wednesday. So that, and they were literally pulling a canopy down. The ring was down. Everything was happening. And then we just seen the alpacas in the field at the back. <laughs> and I'd heard about them. When the fireworks went off as well. Like they must have just thinking, what is going on here? <laughs> I mean, uh, we've also got some ducks. We've got a couple of peacocks as well. Like basically, because my, my old man's got everything. When, he, when it's his, one of his big birthdays, they buy him things, you know, the, the team here buy him things. And they were like, what'd you get? What'd you get a man who's got everything? Alpacas. I'm like, what? Where'd you get that from? So, yeah, they, they got they got to witness the whole of fight camp, the Alpacas. I bet they're big boxing fans now. They're quite hard animals to impress. I saw a lot of them when I went to Peru. They've got this kind of relentlessly haughty expression on their face, but um, a bit of attitude about them. I quite like it. Anyway, that's a whole other subject and a whole other podcast. We'll do another podcast for for alpacas another time, yeah? Yeah, we can do. Yeah, happily, happily. We've got plenty of time this week. Um, so yeah, we'll, th- thanks for your time today, Eddie. We will uh, we'll see you again soon. Uh, thanks everybody for for tuning in. If you could give us a rate um, and a review uh, and subscribe if this is the first time you've listened, that'll be great. And we'll catch you again next time. Podcast Network. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.